Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, this is Kevin McCracken, and I want to extend a big thank you to Tim and Lance, the hosts of Crawl Space, for allowing us to hijack their feed. You may be aware of a new show premiering on the Crawl Space Media Network titled Death by Incarceration. This show is hosted by me and Suave Gonzalez. Each week, starting on Tuesday, June 1st, we'll be joined by lawmakers, community leaders, and the currently and formerly incarcerated as we shed light on institutions that viciously target and harm marginalized communities, especially those of color. This early episode you're about to hear is an interview with the current District Attorney of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, who's running for re-election. Listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows, so you don't miss any of the thought-provoking, game-changing content. Please enjoy this early release bonus episode, and thank you. Rizzo's uh, anti-black bias, although it's been uh, rather cleverly concealed by his public relations during recent years, is very evident from the record. Ten years ago, if you were said, I'm for law and order, you were automatically accused of being a racist. Didn't stop me, because I know I'm not a racist. Eyewitness News sat down today with former Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abraham. She worked with Seth Williams for 10 years in the District Attorney's office. The fact that um, well, Judge Diamond made a credibility judgment that he didn't believe a thing that Mr. Williams said and committed him to prison. Going from chief law enforcement officer to prisoner is a pretty steep and a pretty high flow. So my name is Larry Krasner. I'm the elected district attorney of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I took office in the beginning of 2018. Before that, I spent 30 years as a civil rights and criminal defense attorney, working for people who frankly were for the most part stepped on and marginalized. And I am also one of a quite a group of prosecutors who consider themselves to be progressive and are looking to do the things that this country needs, including decarceration and putting resources into things that do a better job at making us safe than putting all of our funds into jails and policing. That is, you know, just, you know, to reference what this podcast is about again is, you know, really, really taking a look, a deep dive into the into the system as it exists, um, you know, and, and hopefully helping our listeners come to some conclusions around how we might be able to adjust it. What, what, um, originally got you into this kind of work. I'm really curious as to how, what people's origin stories are around um, civil rights and reform. So my parents have pretty interesting histories. My mother was uh, essentially an evangelist. She graduated high school early, very deeply religious woman, and attended Bible college and seminary. 
my father was a secular man from a Russian Jewish immigrant family who uh, came up during the depression, worked for the post office, volunteered for World War II, came out and went to Columbia University on the GI Bill and became an author and a writer. And that's what he did for his career. So they were very, I think, artistic, idealistic, spiritual people um, who also had a lot of adversity. My dad became severely disabled. There were times when we were, frankly, eating on food stamps, surviving on public benefits. And there is something about growing up with challenges and growing up with adversity that I think allows you to see the position of the outsider to understand its importance. And that is a lot of the reason why I believe I ended up as a public defender and then a criminal defense attorney and then a civil rights attorney representing individuals. It's fun. It's delightful, actually. Not necessarily always the most lucrative, but that is sort of the point, isn't it? Where do you find your value? Agreed. Definitely agreed. So let's roll forward a little bit. You at some point decided to uh, move from that side of the the courtroom to the prosecutor side and you know maybe just so people understand and because you know the 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 show is going to be broadcast on a network a podcast network that is going to reach uh, you know way outside of the philadelphia metropolitan area and just so people around the country and you know hopefully the world understand you know kind of who you are and and what made you make that decision to move from you know the defense side to the prosecution side of the criminal justice system well, number one, I never viewed them as being in some sense opposite. I always viewed it as being a good thing to work in criminal justice to try to make it accurate and make it fair, make it more scientific, less repressive, which can be done on both sides. Uh, but, you know, 30 years in court, and I was a very busy trial lawyer. I was probably in court four days a week. I must have had more than 10,000 cases, a couple thousand trials or more. And I'm talking everything, death penalty cases all the way down to underage drinking. Um, shows you what the system is. And once you see it, it's kind of hard to shut your eyes. The land of freedom should not be the most incarcerated country in the world. And so as I, as I was getting into my 30th year as an attorney, I had to admit that I had made things better for individual clients by working very hard. But the entire system had gotten worse the whole time. My career impact was next to nothing. And I found that unsatisfactory. I wanted to make sweeping change in a system that had only gotten worse for 30 years. And that meant I had to stop banging my head against the building that contained the power. And I had to go inside the building and hold the power. It's, uh, it's really fundamentally about taking over government to make it work for you. And I got lucky enough for it to turn out that way. That's amazing. And <clears throat> so when you ran... Uh, for, and I know that you that you're in the middle of a primary right now, um, and Suave keeps me posted. You know what was the reaction of the public to um, you know, especially you know, and we'll just be honest. Pennsylvania has an incredibly long history of inc very very harsh sentences, um, some of the harshest sentences in the country, um, and including and including uh, you know post uh, release. You know when people are returning to their to their citizenship, um, you know, incredibly long parole terms. But how, how did the, the, you know, the, the citizens sort of react to this, you know, really in Pennsylvania, you know, relatively new idea around how to run a prosecutor's office? Well, I think they responded really well in Philly, but understand what Philly is. It's the poorest of the 10 largest cities. It is the biggest city in Pennsylvania. 
It is a city where, if my numbers are right, the, the population of white residents is about 37% right now. And the majority of the approximately 63% residents of color are black. So it was a, situ it was a, a city that knew very well the failings, the problems of the criminal justice system, and also knew a, a style of policing uh, that was ferocious. You know, this was the sixth largest city with the fourth largest police force. And this is a city where one of its most formative elected officials was a beat cop who became the police commissioner, who became the mayor for two terms, and then tried to come back for more terms. Frank Rizzo. A right. man who until recently, you know, he was the only mayor whose statue was anywhere near City Hall. That statue is now gone. Ten years ago, if you were said, I'm for law and order, you were automatically accused of being a racist. Didn't stop me because I know I'm not a racist. Rizzo campaign advertising, particularly the billboard advertising, uh, was very clever. It, it showed a picture of Rizzo and he's pointing his finger out. And he says, Rizzo means business. Really, the way that was interpreted by both blacks and whites is that he's going to keep the blacks in their place. The black community has not had a friendly relationship with Frank Rizzo as police commissioner or as mayor. The leadership has looked upon him as an, an adversary. When he stopped the Black Panthers down here in North Philadelphia and had them stripped of the clothes and street and everything like that, uh, you could tell how he used to storming on black people, you know, back there before he was mayor. They're a little angry. They were humiliated. We took their pants off them to search them. This is a city with special history that is simultaneously a city that everyone recognizes as being a national landmark for freedom because of the writing of the U.S. Constitution, because of the Declaration of Independence, because of all of our national parks devoted to freedom that attract tourists from everywhere. You, you had a city that is supposed to be about, about one thing, and yet at times we had the highest level of incarceration of the 10 biggest cities. At times we've had the very highest level of excessive supervision on probation and parole. Of the 10 largest cities, we had the largest number of juvenile lifers, not only in the state, not only in the country, but in the world. Suave can talk to that, but you know, that's that's what this city was and there was a real disconnect between what it was and what it was supposed to be and let's let, yeah let's do, drill down on that just slightly and i know no, i and just want to say that uh first i want to thank mr krasner because i think that he's a very a person of integrity a person that do what he say he's going to do and um, i mean that in a good way and but as a juvenile lifer I just want to ask the question on behalf of other juvenile lifers that have shot the questions to us. Do you think as district attorney that it's fair that juvenile lifers are being put on parole for the rest of their life in Pennsylvania when Michigan juvenile lifers are being released and the most they're given is like five years supervision to, so they can integrate themselves into the community. But in Pennsylvania, we are stuck with a life sentence basically on parole. As district attorney, do you think that's a fair sentence, even after the United States Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional to keep a juvenile in prison for life? Well, uh, you may or may not know, but that issue is being, is being litigated right now, so I can't say too much, but let me say this, right? If you had someone who's 17 and a half and was given a life sentence as a juvenile, 
then uh, when they get resentenced, you would think that they would be resentenced in the same way as if they were 18 and a half when the incident occurred. Well, if you're 18 and a half and you're given a sentence of years, then the maximum sentence is not going to be life. The maximum sentence is going to be usually twice the same number of years, right? So I think it's weird. I, I definitely think it's strange. I think it's weird for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to have declared that in all juvenile lifer cases, the maximum sentence is life. Uh, I don't know what the courts are going to do with it. Pennsylvania courts are a little unpredictable at times, but without saying more because it is being litigated, I think it's strange. Being though that we are in a real, in this city, in Philadelphia, everybody knows there's a DA um, run. Everybody want to be the DA, right? And I always tell people, what are you bringing to the table? You as the incumbent DA, do you think the two opponents that we have running for DA right now, do you think they're competent enough to run your office? Because one of them is running as a reformer, which I find strange. You know, I find it real strange that Mr. Carlos Vegas, with the history he has in the court system with minority communities, him being a minority himself, um, is now running as a reformer. That is the most hilarious thing that a lot of people in the community is finding like how is he going to say he's a reformer what is your take on that sure i'm happy to talk about that so i mean the truth is there's no real issue with the republican who's running republicans don't win we got seven democrats for every republican not even worth really talking about that uh the you know just one of many issues with mr vega and i knew mr vega for several years before I got into office, when I did, I fired him. All right, let's just call it what it is. I knew him five years and five days I fired him. And I fired him for a reason. I did not believe then, I do not believe now, he meets the threshold of being ethical enough and a few other things to hold the position. Why do I say that? Well, look at Anthony Wright. Anthony Wright in Philly is a pretty famous case. Here's a guy who did 25 years. He was convicted by a jury about 30 years ago. He, he did 25 years for supposedly raping and murdering an elderly woman. And much of that time, he was begging to have advanced science, things that had changed since he got sentenced, be used to try to prove that he wasn't the one who did it, right? The DA's office at that time, not my office, the one that the prior administration ran, is fighting against it because they're crazy, because they don't want the truth. You know, I mean, why would you ever fight against DNA when it's conclusive? But he finally gets it tested, and what it turns out is that not only is it not Anthony Wright, not only do we know it could not be Anthony Wright's DNA, which is taken from this woman who was raped and killed, but we know who did it because it just so happens that the DNA removed from the woman matches someone who was in the DNA database. In other words, somebody who had been convicted for something else, their DNA was sampled and put into the database. So now we know he didn't do it, and we know who did. He gets a new trial. It sounds like this story's over, except it's not. Because Carlos Vega and another prosecutor in Philadelphia retried him after they knew what I just told you. Right. I mean, I don't even know what to say after that. The jury knew what to say, which was not guilty in about half an hour. And the city knew what to say, which is here are $10 million when Anthony Wright sued and part of that money was due to the outrage of his going through a second trial. But I mean, what is there to say? Do you want a chief prosecutor whose idea of justice is that when you know for sure someone didn't do the crime, you, you prosecute them a second time? 
It's to, he's going to have a real problem answering that. And that is just a single example from a 35-year career in the district attorney's office uh, that I think supports what I said when I came in, which is you can't stay. Yeah. I mean, and I think, and I think that that's just one of the cases that, and I know Anthony Wright personally, myself, and I just think that that's just one of the cases with Mr. Carlos Vega's name attached to it because there's plenty of more cases that we could go into. But I also find it mind-blowing that our former district attorney, Steph Williams. Eyewitness News sat down today with former Philadelphia District Attorney Lynn Abraham. She worked with Seth Williams for 10 years in the district attorney's office and says she was surprised that he was led away in handcuffs after the guilty plea and immediately taken into custody. The fact that um, well, Judge Diamond made a credibility judgment that he didn't believe a thing that Mr. Williams said and committed him to prison. Going from chief law enforcement officer to prisoner is a pretty steep and a pretty high fall. It's not the way that that should have turned out. Here's a man who could have been the mayor, maybe even the governor. Who knows where his future could have led him. Abraham went on to say that the next DA will face the tall task of revamping the office and restoring public trust. Which violated the trust of the city and the people. You know, get out of prison now. And now he's put in a position where he's running these programs like chief executive director of a program, a vocational program, when thousands and thousands of ex offenders can't even find a job because of that one conviction and i give you an example i was offered a job when i came home i was working at the 25th district as a case manager at all places and then i you know was offered a case managing job for another city organization Badessa, and they hired me as a case manager put me through the training two weeks later i get a letter because of your case 34 years ago we have to resend your offer. And to me, it's like, like, wow. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. But then I opened the newspaper, and here we got Mr. Steph Williams. They're recently just being released because of the pandemic. and even do all his time. Now he's moonlighting as I understand the system. And this is why I always tell the people in the city of Philadelphia, right? Vote with your conscience is not with your emotions you know there's a lot of things that we could say mr krasner mr krasner don't do this but guess what the one thing that we all can say when mr krasner was running for da he came into the prisons and spoke with the people in the prison and he was clear about his position if you commit a crime and we get you you're gonna do some time we're going to be fair about it, but you're going to do some time. Mr. Krasner is not running around the city, opening the gates and talking about let everybody out. And I'm not just saying this because I have met him a few times. I'm saying this because I live in the city of Philadelphia. I live in the worst part of the city of Philadelphia, North Philly. I see the gun violence that's going on. And people love to say it's Mr. Krasner's fault. And I always ask the people, well, tell me, how is it his fault? And they can't. And they can't, and they can't. So I always tell the people, you know what? We want Larry on our show, so we could ask him. 
what is the solution in the city that us as citizens could do to reduce the crime violence and the gun violence? Because we just can't blame everything on the DA's office or the cops. I think the community should be involved. You know, Mr. Krasner, what can we, the community, do in Philadelphia to reduce some of this violence? So, great question. I mean, first of all, we gotta we gotta figure out what the problem is, and I think I know what the problem is. There's two levels to it. The long-term problem is we got chronic high violence in Philly that connects directly to our poverty and our failure to invest in community-based organizations that are really good at preventing crime. There has have been successes in LA. There have been successes in Chicago and other places. When you put money into community-based organizations over a number of years, you get actual prevention, which is what we want. You know, locking a whole bunch of people up after the blood's in the street is not the point. The point is to keep the blood out of the street. So that is part of it, is that the chronic long-term issue is we have not invested in certain communities. We have not invested in community-based organizations. We need to do it. But the what we're seeing right now during this pandemic is fascinating and I think tells us how sure we can be that is right. Because what we see here is basically every major city is having a terrible spike up in gun violence. They are not having a terrible spike up in crime. That is not true. Most of them are down a little bit. They're not having a terrible spike up in all violence. There are a lot of violent crimes, rape, uh, even gunpoint robbery, you know, stabbings, things like that, that are actually down. And almost all the way across the country, you see slight downturns in overall violence, which includes, among other items, includes the gun violence, and you see crime down. So how come you got the gun spike going through the roof? The answer is it's happening in every major city where we see this. We see high school classrooms shut down, summer camp shut down, recreation centers, swimming pools shut down, organized sports shut down in school, organized sports shut down out of school, job programs shut down, normal employment in a low dollar economy, working for that the guy who lives on the corner who's got the rusty van and he remodels kitchens, kind of work I used to do as a teenager. That's gone because everybody making less than 40 grand got smashed. What we are seeing without question, because we see it in every city, we see it where there's a, a progressive DA, we see it where there's a traditional DA, we see it where there's a Republican DA, we see it where there's a Democratic DA. What we are seeing right now is a spike because of the pandemic. And as society opens up, we're gonna see real improvements because all these things are gonna come back, right? But let's not lose sight of the big issue here. What is the big point? The big point is you just saw a terrible experiment. You just saw what happens when you rip away from society everything that is protective in the fabric of society for young men. Because this is really about young men killing young men, with few exceptions. That's really what we're talking about here. So it's it's not just that we need it. Obviously, we know now more than ever that we need it. It's that we need it even more than we thought. It's that we should be investing more in all of those things. And that tells us what I said in the beginning, which is that we got to put that money into the community-based organizations. We got to put that money where it really belongs. If we just keep dumping money into policing in the sixth largest city that's got a fourth largest oversized, outsized police department, if we just keep putting money into jails in a city that has been the most incarcerated at times, we will fail. We will fail like we failed for 30 years. This is a, t a time for a national reckoning on the reality that we got to put resources into things that work, things like cure violence, but also things like all manner of things that have worked in LA and Chicago so that young people do not feel hopeless, like they have no future, and they do not pick up a gun. A lot of people want to know, people that's been 
um, or people that claim that it's been falsely um, accused or wrongly incarcerated, a lot of them want to know if they are banned from court because they don't have an issue and they come up with critical evidence they could prove to their innocence. How do they go about to present that evidence to your office or to the courts? Well, as you may as, as you may know, Suave, uh, we came into an office that was much more about the cover up than than it was about actually finding out if there were innocent people in jail. And so the record for the last 30 years with exonerations is almost none. John Miller exonerated and released from prison today after serving more than 20 years for a murder he says he did not commit. Spiritually, I knew he was coming home today. I just felt it. Um, I wasn't nervous as I was all these other years. It's been a long time coming. I've been fighting, 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 fighting. He's been fighting, fighting, fighting. But you know, God is good. A month ago, a federal judge found Miller's constitutional rights had been violated. His main accuser recanted during trial. This morning, the district attorney's office had the option to release or retry Miller's case. The Conviction Integrity Unit opted not to retry Miller. Yesterday, Chester Holman walked out of court after all charges against him were formally dropped. He was wrongly convicted of murder and served 28 years. It's two exonerations in one week. Historically, Philadelphia and other cities throughout throughout the country are glad to let people know when we have convicted somebody of a crime, but we don't hear a whole lot about it when we say, oops, we got that wrong. Patricia Cummings heads the newly expanded unit and expects more cases like this. So does the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and Tom Gallagher of Pepper Hamilton, who work pro bono on Miller's case. We have over 6,000 people that have written to us asking for us to review their cases since 2009. We have about 40 clients that we're actively representing, either in court or asking the DA's office to take another look at their cases. We are trying to create a system such that we can systematically look at those cases and determine whether or not we believe the case has any merit or whether or not it doesn't. And Jim, we reached out to former district attorney Lynn Abraham. She was serving at the time of both of those convictions. When asked for comments, she simply put, the court has spoken and there's nothing else to say. We're reporting live in Center City, Annie McCormick, Channel 6 Action News. Jim. Thank you, Annie. And the record for the last three years with exonerations in this administration is 18 people on 19 cases. We have a, a chunk of attorneys never used to be there before who worked full-time on this and they have a very long list of people who have already applied who say i'm innocent or I, I was cheated in my trial in some fashion and we try to go through them and spot those cases where it looks like there's something that might be true and something that might be provable that's just not possible in all kinds of cases but if they want to bring it to our attention then what they should do is if they got a lawyer go through a lawyer if they got the innocence project go through the innocent project if they don't they can come to us directly. A lot of people do come to us directly. And the way to do it by email is patricia.cummings at phila, P-H-I-L-A dot gov. Patricia.c-u-m-m-i-n-g-s at phila, P-H-I-L-A dot gov. Um, you know, you can, you can come to us. We're gonna to try to take a look at it. Obviously we have our own way of prioritizing who to look at first because every case is a ton of work. If it even gets passed, seeming like there's something we could do here right uh you know we have probably rejected 95 percent of the cases we got we have accepted and exonerated maybe about five percent of the cases we got but we've moved into a second phase here where we've been able to see that certain detectives just kept taking false confessions from people and once you see that 
you can't unsee it. Once you see that, you got to look at all the cases that detective did to see whether there are other cases where we no longer believe the case has integrity. Uh, same thing with prosecutors. There's one prosecutor in, in particular whose name just keeps coming up on these cases. And when we dig in, unfortunately, we found more than once. I think we're up to three times that he had access to a pile of witness statements and he only pushed forward to the defense the ones he liked. Well, that ain't the law. You have to turn over to the defense things that may help them. That's what the Constitution says. That's what the law says. You have to do that. And it's obvious that that's not what he did at all. He thought he was above the law. He thought he could get away with it. He did get away with it. So we have to also do things like look at the cases that prosecutor handled to see if he pulled the same tricks in those other cases. And before I pass it on to my partner my last my last question is almost it's an offer you know i work in behavior health now and um i would like to contribute my service and the service of my employers which is a behavior health clinic for anyone that you know that might need some therapy counseling um we offer that and um all you got to do is contact me and we will make sure they would get it in the city of philadelphia no matter how many people you know i think that everybody got to contribute and that's my contribution um to you uh, if you need me you know how to contact me i'm there i believe that people need to know and hear it from people that's been in the inside that this is not us against them this is citizens fighting to bring healing to our city and to vote for the right person kevin is on you a lot to unpack from the last few comments and questions um but i did want to say one thing that that has come up a lot in our you know well we've been doing this podcast and we've done a lot of interviews over the last two months is that sort of level of corruption in the philadelphia da's office previously you know it was the current da clearly you're making steps to improve and go back and clean up some of those mistakes but you know how do we help you as a as a community to continue to bring those cases forward because there is one name that keeps coming up and we can leave it off for now, but we know who it is. Everybody knows who that ADA is. Not in sorrow, but in scorn. And that scorn being, and you should stand up and look at him and look at him for the despicable human being that he is, the mad dog that he is, and say, for what you did, why you did it, how you did it, for what you did, you should die. Um, and, you know, how, how do we assist, you know, as a community to move these changes forward and go back and clean up our past mistakes? Because one thing I've learned after 22 years of sobriety is that the, the best that you're ever going to be is, is by cleaning up the past. And it doesn't matter what it is. Taking accountability, no matter whether it was your mistake or somebody else's that worked for the same office you're working for i mean that is really the highest level of change in my opinion but how do we help with that yeah krasner well you know it's a great question i think at the national level you have to realize that none of this is going to happen if the progressive prosecutors who have been elected get unelected none of this is going to happen if we don't see even more growth in the movement we are at a point right now where 10 percent of the united states has elected a progressive prosecutor and they are re-electing those progressive prosecutors. These are battles you have to win. You have to keep winning. The good news is if we look at the last election cycle, out of the, I believe it was uh, more than 20 and less than 30 
races where there was a progressive prosecutor candidate, only four were lost. You know, Democratic Party doesn't win with that kind of frequency. Republican Party doesn't win with that kind of frequency. So I guess what I'm telling you is we got a good start here. You're looking at a group of people, if all the progressive prosecutor candidates who are for real and not just faking it, if they all form their own political party, it would be the winning and winningest political party in the United States right now, right? So we're off to a good start. But it means that we have to not just win, we have to win big. We have to not just win some of these races, we gotta to try to win all of these races. As we continue to win, especially in big jurisdictions, our influence is even more than 10% because these are the jurisdictions, Brooklyn, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philly, Baltimore, Boston, these are jurisdictions that have put tons of people in jail. And these are jurisdictions that can go the opposite direction. They can do the right thing just as fast as they did the wrong thing before, right? So at a national level, you gotta vote, you gotta get other people to vote, you have to push for candidates who are for real. They're not just talking, because remember, my opponent right now is talking. He just doesn't have any receipts to back it up. But you gotta push for for uh, real reform from real progressive prosecutors. I think part two, and it's the one that to me is very exciting, is that we have to do the same thing with our judges. You know, if 1.0 is progressive prosecutors because they have so much influence and power, then 2.0 is our judges and it is our mayors who pick our police commissioners. It is our mayors who negotiate with the police union. For the most part, mayors in the United States have done whatever the local police union told them. And for the most part, that meant that the police commissioner, even when they wanted to thing, clean things up, they couldn't, right? That's our 2.0. And with data, we're getting to the point where we can actually gather you some data. If you wanna know if a judge is always given more time than everybody else, we can find that out. You wanna know if a judge just keeps giving black people more time than white people, we can find that out, right? We need to pay close attention who is becoming a judge and who would like to be reelected as judge. We need to pay close attention to whether our mayor is 100% committed that there will be accountability in policing and that there will be constitutional conduct and that there will be the elimination as much as possible of racism and brutality. We need that. I mean, for God's sake, look what happened just today in the Twin Cities, in the middle of the George Floyd trial. Look at what the news is this morning coming out of the Twin Cities, you know? Um, I think that is really the key to it. Now, I mean, sure, there are some things that could be done in Philly that are a little bit more specific, but the most important thing is not me, and it's not Philly. The most important thing is that there is a real grassroots movement out there. All these progressive prosecutors work for that movement. We don't run it, we don't control it, because that's not what lawyers do. Lawyers do not lead movements. People lead movements, and lawyers help them out. We got the skills to help out, but this movement is strong, it's robust, and it needs every person listening to play a significant, meaningful role in pushing it forward. I wholeheartedly agree. So on May 18, why should the people of Philadelphia reelect Mr. Larry Craston? Well, they should reelect me because I made promises and I kept them. Because we said we were gonna do something about mass incarceration. We have cut in half future years of mass incarceration in Philly. I said I was gonna do something about mass supervision and excessive supervision, we've cut by two thirds. The future years of excessive supervision on probation and parole, we are seeing the lowest levels of incarceration in the county since 1985. 
we have made commitments to protect immigrants and we started a first ever unit that's doing it. Commitments to protect working people from their employers when their employers commit crimes. We've kept that. We said we were going to try to do the right thing moving forward and backwards. And if you look backwards, you're going to see 18 exonerations on 19 cases and we are just getting started. So we have kept those promises. The alternative is you can go backwards. If you want to go backwards to the candidate who is endorsed by the Fraternal Order of Police, a you know a group that also endorsed Donald Trump two times, a group that has tried to justify the wearing of Nazi tattoos visibly by uniformed police. If, if you want to support the candidate who is the candidate of an FOP that wants no police accountability and that invited the Proud Boys to come into their union hall to drink beers with them, if you want to support that, then go for it. But you're asking to go back to 1955. In 1966, you're asking to go back to Frank Rizzo's Philadelphia, which was racist and it was brutal and it put people in jail for nothing more than being black and brown and poor. Uh, it's a pretty stark choice. You can have the past, but I say we choose the future. Great. Well, we're, we're a little over time and I want to honor your the request from your team that we keep it to a half an hour. But I'm going to throw it out there. We would love to have you back on, especially after you win the primary. Um, because we know what that looks like in Philadelphia as a Democrat. And so uh, we're really, you know, as as advocates for true change, Suave and I wish you the best of luck uh, next month because we need to continue this process. And what you stated, I will just add one thing. People need to really look at the crime stat facts when when there's when there's fear mongering and uh, and um, campaigns against progressive district attorneys really look at the stats take a hard look at what's really happening because a lot of times those books are, are cooked and there's they'll they'll highlight one stat versus all the rest of what's really going on in the city so you know i ask people to please please look hard at what's really going on in these cities you know i can speak to that for a second Here, here's what's so ironic about it um we've been able to watch how the media and pol and the mainstream politicians react to things here's the truth we have a nearly 85% conviction rate for shootings, both fatal and non-fatal, as of right before the pandemic when, when, the, when the courts shut down. That's amazingly high. And in our case, it's accurate because we're not framing people, right? Which is more difficult. It's easier to win when you cheat. But in our case, it's real. But is that what is being said? Is that what is being covered? No, they went off in the corner and they found statistics for possession of guns where they're not used and without admitting that there are real problems with a lot of the investigations that are done by the police in those cases, they act like that's the issue. Like the real issue here is whether or not someone who possesses a gun has a high conviction rate. We're going to see this. You know, we're going to see moving the goalpost, shifting the framing. They're going to do it in every city where you have a progressive prosecutor. And they're going to do it in a way in the media and in the politics that they haven't done it to conservative prosecutors until they lose. And they're losing and they're going to lose and they're going to lose because what will happen on election day in Philly and I think what will happen in many other places is that they will see enthusiastic people who otherwise wouldn't vote who are part of this movement and are going to come out to vote for this movement and when they see that then there's going to be a moment when they can't say anymore oh this is just a fluke we don't have to worry about this we can beat this no you can't you can't beat it we're going to win this one because we're right and uh, I will be happy to come back after May the 18th because maybe then we can have a little talk about mainstream politics and maybe we can have a little talk about mainstream press and the relationship they have to mass incarceration and how they have to change along with the voters 
Agreed. And in closing, I just want to tell the people of Philadelphia that's always arguing with me every time I attend places. You know, I don't support Larry Krasner because he's the DA. I support Larry Krasner because he is a man that have kept his promise. And any man that could look you in the eyes and tell you, I'm going to do this and do it, it's a man that you have to respect. And this is the current district attorney in the city. He looked us in the eyes when he was running the first time and said, this is what I'm going to do. And everything he said he was going to do in his campaign, he done. Today, we have 18 families that have their sons back, all their husbands, all brothers, back because somebody found it in their heart to look into their cases and seeing that injustice. You know, and that's a person that I'm going to vote for and I'm encouraging all juvenile lifers. Anybody that's an um, ex-offender in the city of Philadelphia, y'all have the rights to vote. Use that vote with your conscience. Don't vote with your emotions. And thank you, Mr. Krasner. And we were rooting for you. And we hope that on May 18, you are successful because we want you back on our show. Well, thank you. I look forward to it. It's great talking to both of you. Right. Thank you so much. Death by Incarceration was created to look at every aspect of the current criminal justice system. Each week, we will share stories intended to shed light on institutions that viciously target and harm marginalized communities, specifically communities of color. Brought to you by Crawlspace Media, Suave Gonzalez, and Kevin McCracken. Please listen, follow, and subscribe to Death by Incarceration, coming in summer 2021, wherever you get your podcasts.